Lando and Kathy, as soon as you're ready, would you like the verses up right away? No, that it doesn't matter. <clears throat> um, this practice that we're going to be doing, um, Lecto Divina, is about listening with the ears of our heart as a community. And if you're like me, you'd like to get a pen. It could help you be more relaxed about writing down what you hear in the moment. And um, I really appreciate this practice because my mind is very hyperactive. And so at, with, together in a community like this, I appreciate slowing down together, hearing the scripture more than once and um, listening to what it says. So Lana's gonna read the first verse, uh, the first uh, the passage of the first time, and it will be on your screen. You can look there as well. <clears throat> and during the first reading, uh, try to be attentive to and notice any phrase or sentence that stands out for you. And if you want to pop it in the chat, you're welcome to. And um, we'll have a pause for 30 seconds after the first reading for you to think on that. What, what uh, phrase or sentence stood up? Okay. Psalm 62, five to 12. Yes, my soul, find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock, my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together, they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God. And with you, Lord, is unfailing love. And you reward everyone according to what they have done. Now, now we'll take 30 seconds and reflect on what <clears throat> phrase or word sentence stood out to you. Okay, now we're going to read the second time round, and this time, think about in what ways this passage might intersect with your life. Yes, my soul, I find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my mighty rock my refuge. Trust in him at all times, you people. Pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing. Together they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, they do not set, do not set your heart on them. 
One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard. Power belongs to you, God. And with you, Lord, is unfailing love. You reward everyone according to what they have done. And now 30 seconds to reflect on that. Okay, we're just going to read it one more time, and please uh, continue to write things in the uh, chat, things that are hitting you, and re read it one more time and think of any comfort or challenges that are highlighted for yourself in this passage, any comfort or challenges. Yes, my soul find rest in God. My hope comes from him. Truly, he is my rock and my salvation. He is my fortress. I will not be shaken. My salvation and my honor depend on God. He is my refuge, my mighty rock. Trust in him at all times. You people, pour out your hearts to him, for God is our refuge. Surely the lowborn are but a breath, the highborn are but a lie. If weighed on a balance, they are nothing together, they are only a breath. Do not trust in extortion or put vain hope in stolen goods. Though your riches increase, do not set your heart on them. One thing God has spoken, two things I have heard, Power belongs to you, God, and with you, Lord, is unfailing love, and you reward everyone according to what they have done. <clears throat> so we're just going to highlight a couple of the chats, uh, the phrases that came forth, and, um, and then we'll wrap this part up. God is my fortress. Unfailing love. <clears throat> Another one, unfailing love. Find rest in God. Pour out your heart to him. Trust in him at all times. Pour out your heart. Requires a lot of vulnerability and trust. Going through COVID, it came to just us and Jesus. We are afraid, but he is present. I will not be shaken. Hope, refuge, fortress. For myself, the image of the rock. I like the ocean also and hanging out on the edge. And uh, a, lot of the, a lot of times there's beach and then there's rocks. Uh, and you can stand on the rock and the waves can crash all around you. And you're, you're safe from the destruction of the waves. If they get, uh, you know, if you were on the beach, you'd be covered or whatever. But uh, the rock is solid. So, For me too, is a rock, refuge, fortress. Yeah. And also a picture of a large rock at the ocean. And uh, in these fairly uncertain times, and we just came through an election in the United States, and <clears throat> we've got COVID going on, and um, Earth can seem kind of, well, it is sort of uncertain, but God's not uncertain. So I will rest in that. Okay. Thank you. Keep Thank you uh, meditating on this scripture and Feel free to add things into the uh, chat. <clears throat>
morning, everyone. We're doing communion this morning, and uh, we wanted to uh, borrow a modern liturgy. That off the screen. There we go. Wanted to, we're going to borrow a modern liturgy from the uh, Iona Christian community, which uh, is on that little island off the west coast of Scotland, the island of Iona. And that has a, just an incredibly rich heritage uh, back to the mid 500s, 563, I believe, was when a monk settled there and built a monastery. And from there, they did a lot of evangelism to Scotland and England. So it's a rich heritage. Um, I'm gonna gonna read this this uh, liturgy though, and we'll we'll be taking communion here in just a minute. Table of bread and and wine is now ready, so come to this table, you who have much faith, and you who would like to have more. You who have been here often, and you who have not been here for a while. You have who have tried to follow Jesus. And you who have struggled, come. It is Christ who invites us to meet him here. Loving God, through your goodness, we have this bread and wine to offer, which earth has given and human hands have made. May we know your presence in the sharing of this bread, so that we may know your touch in all bread, in all matter. We celebrate the life that Jesus has shared among his community through the centuries and shares with us now. We made one with Christ and one with each other. We offer these gifts and with them, we offer ourselves a single holy living sacrifice. Blessed is our brother Jesus who walks with us on the road of our suffering and who knows and who is known to us in the breaking of this bread. On the night of his arrest, Jesus took bread, and having blessed it, he broke the bread and gave it to his disciples, saying, This is my body given to you. In the same way, he took wine, and having given thanks for it, he poured it out and gave the cup to his disciples, saying, This cup is the new relationship with God, filled with my blood. Take this and share it. Let us pray. Jesus, breathe your spirit upon us and upon this bread and wine. May they become for us your body, vibrant with your life, healing, renewing, and making us whole. And as the bread and wine which we now eat and drink are changed into us, may we be changed again into you, bone of your bone, flesh of your flesh loving and caring in this world. Amen. Christ, whose table was open to all, is now present in this bread. Christ, whose word be welcomed friend and stranger, offers friendship now through this cup. With people everywhere, with people everywhere, we affirm God's goodness at the heart of humility. Planted more deeply than all that is wrong, the gifts of God for the, for the people of God. Thanks be to God. We'll go ahead and take the bread and whatever you're using for juice or wine.
the living God, in this sacrament we have shared, <coughs> sorry, in this sacrament we have shared in your eternal kingdom, and we ask in your name that we who taste this mystery forever serve you in faith, hope, and love. Glory to God, whose power working in us can do infinitely more than we can ask or imagine. Glory to God from generation to generation in the church and in Christ Jesus forever and ever. Thank you for sharing that with us. And I want to just uh, pray for Karina. Hand it off to her. She's bringing us the message today. So God, thanks that we can do this together, even through Zoom. Thanks that we can uh, come together and worship you. Pray for Karina as you as uh, you speak through her today. Give her your heart ears to hear you. Give us ears to hear you, Lord, and, and that our hearts will be open as well. Thank you, Jesus, in your name. Amen. Good morning, everybody. Um, before I get started preaching, I've actually asked Morgan to read the uh, passage that that we're going to preach from this morning. So if Morgan can be highlighted and we'll have her speak first. Awesome. All right. So the text today comes from Mark 1 verse 14 to 20. Now after John was arrested, Jesus came to Galilee proclaiming the good news of God and saying the time is fulfilled and the kingdom of God has come near. Repent and believe in the good news. As Jesus passed along the Sea of Galilee, he saw Simon and his brother Andrew casting a net into the sea, for they were fishermen. And Jesus said to them, Follow me, and I will make you fish for people. And immediately they left their nets and followed him. As he went a little farther, he saw James, son of Zebedee, and his brother John, who were in their boat mending the nets. Immediately he called to them, and they left their father Zebedee in the boat with the hired men and followed him. Thanks so much, Morgan. So welcome here. Welcome to our, our service together. And I'm um, just going to be pulling up my, my notes here. And I just want to say how good it is to meet together like this. And yet how much better it will be when we get to meet together. I have just felt like COVID tired, sick and tired of COVID tired this week. And yet we're doing the best we can. And I just seeing your faces, seeing your stuff in the chats and, and things like that is just so encouraging. So I just encourage you to keep doing what you can to be connected and reaching out to one another. We just got to get through this together. We're in this together. So I just wanted you to know, like, I just, I value this time with you guys every week. You make a difference to my life. And um, I'm so glad to join here with you. So um, I remember a year or two ago, someone saying to me, wouldn't it be nice to have been like Jesus, to never do anything wrong and never have to apologize or make things right. And I wondered, like, if that was actually true or not like what what does being perfect mean because like i get i get the point we have this this belief and i think it's true that jesus is is sinless and yet can jesus really help me in anything except to you know i don't know forgive my wretchedness if he never struggled with anything real 
And I think sometimes we get this idea, and it's it's been a struggle all throughout the history of the church, that, that even though technically Jesus was human, that he somehow lived like hovering above the frailty, the complications of being human, and he never needed correction or instruction, or he never struggled to expand and elevate his consciousness like we do. But the Bible also tells us that he grew in wisdom and stature. So like, how did that happen? So before we really get into this too much, I want to put a big clarifying statement before I really get started. And if it doesn't seem clear, of course, we can talk about it in the Q&R when it's done. But I'm going to be talking about disrupting a few ideas about how we see Jesus and ourselves in light of that. But I am not asking us to imagine that Jesus and his humanity was sinful. That's not the point. It's not ever the point. But I am hoping that we might find Jesus revealing and relating to our humanity in more ways than we thought possible. So we've got a few words in our Christian faith that have become pretty loaded with extra baggage over the centuries. And one of those words appears a couple of times in this first chapter of Mark. It's the word repent. Is that a loaded word for you like it used to be for me? Like repent or repentance can bring up all sorts of not really positive pictures for us. For the longest time, I associated it more with like hellfire and brimstone than an expression of freedom and growth. And it turns out, be glad to know we're in good company, the problems with the translation of this word have existed all the way back to the very early church. Tertullian, who's one of like the early church, you know, father, theologian, historian guys, Tertullian, that's a name, hey, was very concerned with the new Latin Bible translation of the Greek word metanoia to the Latin penitentium agitae, which either is like a Harry Potter spell, or it sounds a lot more like our English word penance, right? That's kind of what it means. And Tertullian was concerned that it was giving people the wrong idea. He said, you guys, in Greek, metanoia is not about confession of sins, but a change of mind. And yet, I did a quick Google search, and on so many websites and blogs, the definition they had of repentance was about recognizing our wickedness and sinful nature and declaring our unworthiness in comparison to God's glory and feeling and expressing deep sorrow for how wretched we were. And in fact, one very popular site that prides itself on having only biblical literal translation and information says, this is not just about changing your mind. So like what gives? The original Greek had a meaning that was actually demonstrated really well by my oldest son, Brennan, many years ago. So I'm talking about the word metanoia. On a hot summer's day, Brennan, who was probably two or three years old, was with us. We were up at my parents' place, enjoying the attention that my parents, fairly early in their grandparenting careers, gave to our little ankle biters while they tended to the good care and keeping of two exhausted and bleary-eyed parents, namely Josh and yours truly. On this auspicious occasion, my parents decided to take their grandparenting game up a level and offered ice cream with chocolate sauce. Grandparenting level awesome unlocked, or so we thought. 
I don't know exactly what was going on in Brennan's little two-year-old mind or in my sleep-deprived 26-year-old mum brain for that matter, but I can tell you this, as two-year-olds are known to do, he issued a decree that there was no way he was going to try the chocolate sauce. And I, knowing the plans his grandparents had for him were for his good and not to harm him, plans to give him a hope and a future, tried to reason with him. But no matter how we tried, his response was a firm, no way. So I counter-decreed. There would at least be an attempt at eating the ice cream with the chocolate sauce or no ice cream at all. We stared each other down. And eventually, Brennan's desire for ice cream with chocolate sauce was greater than the desire for no chocolate sauce, so he gave it a shot. And I'm happy to report he loved the chocolate sauce. Honestly, I don't know why I decided this was a hill to die on, but I did. So I mean, good thing I'm not looking to write a parenting book anytime soon. But what Brennan experienced next is what could only be described as an important moment of metanoia or repentance, at least as far as your average everyday first century Greek person was concerned. Originally, he thought chocolate sauce was a bad idea, thought it would lead him to certain peril and destruction in some way. And eventually my threats, I, I mean, my excellent Jesus-y parenting moved him to change his mind about the risk of trying it. I'm willing to say taking the risk changed the course of his life or at least his palate because he really, really enjoyed chocolate sauce and chocolate things in most forms ever since. His action was a result of metanoia, changing your mind after thinking. Repentance, our English word, has been loaded to have different meaning that was ever meant in the original text. When we think repentance is about owning how bad you are and about the emotional response and confession of guilt and shame and contrition, you guys, it's, it's not good news and it's no wonder we avoid it. The other thing that, that that idea of repentance does is it actually keeps us centering ourselves and our bad actions rather than maybe hearing from those that we've hurt or believing that we're capable of actually doing better. We can do better when we know better. Sin and death and separation are not the core of who we are. They are what we do when we disconnect from who we are. We don't have to be trapped in damaging behaviors and beliefs and our egos are not the boss of us. Jesus shows us what it looks like to choose something new. We can repent. We don't really have an English word that encapsulates well, what changing your mind after thinking or being present means. But just because we don't have a really adequate word doesn't mean that we get to keep adding to what it originally meant and change its meaning to fit our bad theologies. This is how bad news, good news happens. If we think repentance is about guilt and shame and sin, then Jesus can have no part of it. He can't he, he can't have demonstrated it for us. He can't be the way for us. And we're sort of left stranded and stuck. But what if, I, was, I was read this one article and, and it was so good. And it said, what if we could find that Jesus practiced repentance all the time because he needed it? That his perfection was because of his repentance. 
And what if it was because he lived this life of repentance that he had the authority to say to the people around him and by the extension to us, repent. What if it's been right in front of our noses the whole time? Metanoia is, is actually a verb. And I think when we read the word repent, we need to think about the action that happens when we've changed our mind or deeply thought about something. Action that is, I don't know, based out of our truest God-given self rather than maybe our first instinct, which is often from our shadow self, or maybe you could call it your false self. You know, that, that very human part of us that wants to protect us from pain, conflict, new and unknown things. And I love that in the verses before the ones that we read today at the beginning of Mark, Mark 1 to 14, Mark tells us that John is proclaiming a baptism of repentance for the forgiveness of sins in Mark 1 verse 4. And if we have the wrong definition of repentance, we will hear that John wants us to take part in a ritual that gets us to acknowledge our sinfulness so that we can be forgiven. But if that's true, Jesus should have never gotten into the water, right? Jesus wasn't just pretending and setting an example for us without experiencing it. Baptism is about transformation. Repentance is about transformation. I think he was honestly responding to the truth of what growth and maturity had looked like in his life. Jesus never stopped being human and he never stopped being divine, which is an absolute mystery. I don't really know how that works. But I think maybe a part of it is that Jesus made room to change his mind. And the more he confessed his ego projections, the more he could clearly see what God was doing in the world and amplify that. But I'm just guessing. And our egos hate that unknown. We love certainty. And that can keep us from repenting if we don't learn to see it. When we get stuck in certainty and think that it's certainty, certainty of theology or certainty of orthodoxy and orthopraxy and all the other $5 academic Bible words that will save us, we're in danger of disconnecting from the incomprehensible source that saves us from God, from love, and from the influence of God and God's upside down kingdom trying to break through the fog of this world that God loves and into our right now lives. When we hold on to certainty and double down on our initial understanding, we sin, we hurt others, we hurt ourselves, we create systems of hurt to support our beliefs. We limit who God is and how God can work in the world. But because Jesus practiced repentance, because Jesus didn't believe and behave out of every first thought he had or every tradition he was raised in, he never sinned. And he shows us this in his life over and over again. And it's why he needed the baptism of repentance John was proclaiming, because it's how he was living his life. It was a no-brainer for Jesus to participate in this symbolic act because it's what he was about. He wasn't about following the law to keep him from being sinless. It's like John said, living under the law, believing that we're separated from God, those ideas had to die so that we could change our minds and receive the gift of the Spirit. 
Jesus wanted to demonstrate that through his baptism so that we could see that changing our minds was important. Jesus needed to do it, and so do we. Jesus was constantly being transformed and elevating his mind to understand and embody the love of his father, his own true self, a love that is wider and deeper and higher than anyone can ask, hope, or think. So after his baptism of repentance, Jesus follows the spirit into the wilderness where he spent his time being tempted and having the heat turned up. That temptation was real. Satan was not going to let a public declaration that would literally change the world go unchallenged. The accuser was speaking to places in Jesus' life where he was actually literally tempted to listen to his shadow, to listen to his ego, to take the shortcut, to avoid pain, to use dominance, to use control, rather than invitation and vulnerability. He was literally tempted to live by the law instead of love. And Jesus kept living out his repentance there in the desert and staying connected to love. And by his example, prophesying a new way of living for all of humanity. Think about all the times Jesus demonstrates repentance. I mean, off the top of my head, we've got um, the first miracle at the wedding of Cana where he says to mom, it's not my time. And then, oh, it is his time. Or when he talks to the Syrophoenician woman, hey, you dog. And then he realizes, oh, the wealth of God's kingdom is also for his cultural enemies. I love that picture of repentance. Or when he's on his way to heal Jairus's daughter and the woman with the issue of blood gets him to stop. And it says he changes direction and he blesses the healing that she's taken from him and calls her daughter before he returns to Jairus's house. He often changes his plans and ideas. Jesus, he, he practices repentance and so can we. Good news is for everybody, even Jesus. And it was good news for Jesus that this was how he could live his human life. He didn't need to be trapped by law and limitations and certainty and that's good news for us. And it's an invitation into risk, into vulnerability, into the unknown. I so badly want to sing the Into the Unknown song right now. <laughs> but it often starts with a vulnerable confession. Repentance isn't confession, but confession often precedes repentance. Unearthing the truth is what empowers us to move in new ways. Have you ever experienced that? Listen, when we believe that God is our healer and not our judge, we are free to confess anything and everything. You can't diagnose what you won't let the doctor see. The best kind of confession are those that get to that really deeply rooted lie that presents itself to our subconscious as truth. When we find that lie and speak it out loud, we confess it. Suddenly it loses its power and we can find the truth of God and it moves us to live differently. When we practice this kind of confession, our triggers become our teacher and our history doesn't have to predict our future. We can be set free. Just a small example, because it felt weird to talk about repentance without confession, even though we're talking about repentance. But this happened to me just a few weeks ago. I was avoiding talking to a friend. I was certain that what I wanted to talk to her about would make her feel too awkward 
And it wasn't like a confrontation. There was no like inciting incident, but my history was talking loud. I just couldn't see it yet. The truth is I'd been in a situation like this before. And the story I was telling myself was that if I told her what I was thinking, she would reject me and I would lose everything like we lost everything before because I had told the truth. I couldn't bear going through that again. I told myself I was protecting her from the awkwardness until my friend and my coach asked me to sit with that, see if there was anything deeper. Honestly, in the nicest way, he called me on my BS. I wasn't protecting her. I was triggered and I was afraid. I was protecting my heart and projecting an insecurity on this friend that was totally unfair. Naming that truth, confessing it was powerful. Suddenly I was free to repent, to change my action, to call her and to basically own my awkward and apologize and tell her my truth. And she saw me and she loved me and she was a good friend to me. Confession and repentance are healing. And I love how I see Jesus modeling this for me over and over again. That's the great thing about Jesus. When he says he's the way, he means it. Jesus is more than a belief or an idea. Jesus embodies the kingdom and invites us to follow. Not just have better ideas. Ideas don't change the world. Action rooted in truth and love does. So when we see Jesus in the text for today, in verse 14, making that invitation to those around him that John first made to him, and Jesus says, the time is right. We don't have to wait for God's kingdom any longer. Change your mind. Change your mind. He's saying this to people that have been waiting for God's kingdom. Change your mind. Believe me, it's good news. And so he goes to Simon and Andrew. And they're living the fisherman's life, doing fisherman things, hanging out in their skivvies, smelling like fishes, doing what they'd always done and would always do. And he says, follow me. Change your mind about what your life's work will be. And you'll fish for people instead. And they do it. Even though, what does that even mean to fish for people? I don't think they had a clue how it was all going to work out. That's a major risk. But they heard the invitation of the kingdom through Jesus and they said, yes, they were following the way of repentance and saying yes to Jesus in the kingdom. And the same thing happens with James and John. They leave their father. And I think that's symbolic because it's about tradition and authority and their future security in the family business. It's not that fishing was wrong, but there was a different invitation for them. And they said yes. So I wonder what traditions, places of authority and security Jesus might be inviting us to change our minds and practice about. Growing up in my family, we had a tradition of hard work being the solution to just about everything. And giving yourself a task and getting a job, giving yourself, sorry, to a task and getting a job well done, that's a really good thing to do. But sometimes hard work can become a replacement for admitting weakness or asking for help or avoiding grief and conflict. I had to confess that hard work could not fix everything. And my honest confession was that I needed help. 
And my repentance looked like calling a therapist, learning to be with my feelings, undoing shame stories around who I was and how I was in the world. Basically, therapists are in the work of getting people to make honest confessions and practice healthy repentance. And honestly, sometimes in the moment, that feels more difficult than working harder. Freedom can be costly, but it pays dividends to everyone it touches. Confession and repentance in therapy keeps me connected to love. It's a joy to discover I was wrong about myself or someone else. So I keep doing it. I keep practicing living into my truest God-given self and staying connected to God's love. But I had to see the truth about the lie in my belief regarding the ultimate power of hard work to do it. I needed to live a life of repentance. Or maybe I think it's a good time for us to think about all the traditions that we have, have had in church culture and different church expressions over the years. The church has done good things, but often the church has understood and interpreted the good news in a way that harms others or condemns others or limits others. We love our certainty. We speak about coming under the authority of the Bible and we know, we know what we know and we're just so firmly attached to our interpretations. But aren't we glad for those who found a way to confess the truth about the lies they were believing so that they could change their actions and undo the harm? I couldn't be preaching here today if somebody hadn't been willing to confess that it was wrong to keep women from the pulpit and then took action to make room for women to rise up and speak. Who's being kept out today? Who will require our actions of repentance so that the justice of God can happen through God's church again? My honest hope for us is this. I want us to find again an understanding of confession and repentance that liberates us into joyful action and life-giving reorientation and transformation. Or like the early church father, St. John of Climacus said, repentance is the daughter of hope and the denial of despair. Where is there despair in the world? Where are we lacking hope? Repentance will lead us into embodying the truth and the truth will set us free. And sometimes it makes us cry. And sometimes it means we need to apologize. And sometimes it means we'll need to make amends and reparations. But our repentance will lead us to reconnecting with the goodness of God and God's kingdom being revealed in us and through us on the earth right now. Time is right. The time is now. The kingdom of God is happening all around us. Change your minds and live like it's true. Believe the very good news. Jesus shows us the way to life everlasting. Amen. <laughs>